Hello, welcome to The Quest. My name is Alan Mulhern. Today's episode covers a number of themes. Firstly, a brief overview of the Quest philosophy, followed by some observations on the origins of the pandemic, plus a view that the financial crisis has already begun, but is temporarily disguised. Secondly, that the main justification for capitalism has been its ability to raise long-term economic growth and raise average incomes to an unprecedented extent. We leave the theme, the crisis of capitalism, until next week. Thirdly, we end with a poem from the quest on the soul's vision. Let us begin. Those of you who have listened carefully to the podcasts will have had a clear message that we are entering a Great Depression which is likely to be global. That the ten dimensions of the evolving crises, the horsemen of the apocalypse, will be interacting crises. That the financial crisis is following close upon the economic. That a number of deep fissures in the world system, which have been developing for decades, will widen and intensify. That our civilization and all life on Earth is at risk of deep trauma, that other crises, such as the economic, financial and climatic, were evident before the virus appeared, that our reason is not sufficient to save us, that immense political and social disturbance will follow, that we need a spiritual vision to reorientate human beings at the individual and societal level, that there is an immense crisis of leadership in the world, also that the virus pandemic is a meaningful organic part of this series of world crises. It has spread as a pandemic because we are a world dreadfully out of balance. Let me explain. The immense forces for economic development and growth put enormous pressure on the biosphere and our climate. The science has been clear for half a century. But also upon water systems, forests, soils and wildlife which is being destroyed at an unprecedented rate. There have been five previous mass extinctions in the last 500 million years. We are now in the sixth mass extinction. And this is anthropogenic, that is, caused by humans. Very quickly, we are destroying most wildlife on the planet. Deforestation alone creates immense crises for untold species, as they are pushed into extinction by our rapacious onslaught on the planet. As this happens, there is greater likelihood that diseases jump from animals to humans, and the unprecedented globalisation that now exists carries these pathogens around the planet at the speed of a plane. Many infections have spread from wildlife to humans. The bubonic plague, the Black Plague, which wiped out a third to a half of the European population, in the mid-1300s AD, came on boats from rats carrying fleas, which carried the plague. HIV crossed from chimps to humans. MERS probably crossed from camels to humans. Ebola and the Covid virus probably transferred by bats. If bats enter the human food chain, or feed off the blood of animals in open markets and abattoirs, then they pass their diseases to humans. Our interaction with wildlife is rapacious, and without concerns for the health of animals 
and frequently ourselves. This distortion is the problem with our whole interaction with life. We now have closer contact with some of the remaining wildlife that was once remote, and our globalisation system spreads any diseases to the immense host areas of the world's cities. Wuhan, the apparent transmitter or amplifier of the virus in China, only has had international flights from the year 2000. In both cases, our treatment of wildlife and our treatment of the biosphere through mass travel and trade have given us a perfect storm for major pathogens to spread around the planet. Therefore, this COVID virus will be followed by others, and life in the 21st century will have to change dramatically and quickly, or it will have to live with pandemics, which are becoming more frequent, just as major storms and hurricanes are. It is easy to imagine that a god must be punishing us. Such ideas have always arisen at times of pestilence and natural disasters. But we live in an age of psychology, in which human beings attempt to understand themselves. The origin of all these problems lies in ourselves, and not in an outside force. The climate emergency originated in human activity, especially its unprecedented industrialization. And just as all previous diseases have been explained by natural causes, it will be the same in this case. COVID-19 and climate disturbance are both an expression of our distorted relationship to life and the planet itself. They are reflections of, as it were, a disease in our own minds. I've suggested a roadmap for the evolving crises, the approaching storm number one, two, the storm hits, three, policy response, four, economic contraction, depression, financial chaos and collapse, five, great global depression, six, civil disturbance, political radicalism, dangers of war, seven, fallout and emergence in a radically changed world, and that we're now passing from stage three to four, that is from policy response to enormous economic and financial distress. Immense money creation and government intervention can postpone the crisis, but only intensify it later. Just as the depth of the economic crisis is temporarily disguised by government schemes and money creation, fiscal policy and the like, so the financial crisis has already actually begun, but is being disguised also by immense money creation. Sometimes in financial circles, One hears the phrase, the canary in the coal mine. This saying refers to the custom, in the olden days, for coal miners in the tunnels beneath the surface to carry in a cage a bird, the canary, which sang its beautiful song most of the day. If by chance there was a small amount of gas in the tunnel, undetected by humans, the bird stopped singing and died thus providing a warning to the miners. Recently, there have been two canaries deep in the coal mines of the financial markets. They stopped singing, and emergency operations were carried out. On the surface, hardly anyone noticed. But there is trouble and danger deep below. Gas leaks lead to explosions, collapse of tunnels, loss of life, and sometimes the closure of the mine. 
In September 2019, the Federal Reserve, the Central Bank of the United States, stepped in massively to the repurchase or repo markets to prevent their collapse and further contagion. Hedge funds, which have grown enormously since the 2008 crisis, can obtain returns by using huge amounts of leverage, the use of borrowed funds to increase one's trading position beyond what would be available from the cash balance alone, which they do by swapping treasuries for more cash in the repo markets, one of the world's largest hubs for short-term collateralised loans. The extra cash can then be recycled into even bigger positions, repeating the process to further augment returns. These trades have exploded in popularity since the financial crisis. According to the Bank for International Settlements, these relative value strategies, as they call them, were at the heart of the crisis that gripped the repo market last September, exacerbating a cash crunch that sent short-term borrowing costs soaring. In other words, the Fed stepped in massively to support gamblers. But this has now become a common practice. Thanks to such interventions, the junk bond markets, those highly risky shares, were enjoying in July 2020 their best month for a decade, right in the middle of what is shaping up to be the worst recession in European and American history. The moral hazard of encouraging such activity, or for that matter, the ethical position of a central bank supporting such activity, staggers the imagination. But that is what all central banks have been doing since the 2008 financial crisis. And this is the reason why there will be another, even greater financial collapse. We are living in the midst of financial madness, which, once again, like COVID-19, is a manifestation of a fundamental distortion in our thinking and behaviour. In this case, the insistence on endless wealth by the financial elites and the utter disregard for the rest of the economy and humanity. The second event is now referred to as the March meltdown, that is March of this year, and outside of financial circles received virtually no attention. Colby Smith and Robin Wigglesworth of the Financial Times in July the 30th, 2020, commented, quote, It is hard to overstate the importance of the roughly 20 trillion market for United States government debt, or the alarm that its mounting dysfunction in March 2020 caused. The world GDP, incidentally, is about $80 trillion. The United States government debt alone is $20 trillion. The Financial Times continues... The Treasury market is the biggest, deepest and most essential bond market on the planet, a bedrock of the global financial system, and the benchmark off which almost every security in the world is priced. Trading conditions for United States Treasuries had been poor for a while, but the day after COVID-19 was declared a pandemic, unnerving glitches escalated into mayhem. They continue... The wild price swings in March of Treasury bonds meant many investors struggled to offload even modest Treasury positions at sensible prices. Suddenly, broker screens were going intermittently blank and showing no pricing information for what is considered the world's risk-free rate. The Treasury bond rate is supposed to be completely risk-free. 
and have no problems about being sold. There was a point in time when we were wondering if the bond market would really ever function again, said Nick Maroutsos, co-head of Global Bonds at Janus Henderson, an investment group. He is quoted as saying, If it continued for a couple of weeks, we were thinking we were looking at doomsday. Unquote. The bedrock of the world financial system, this 20 trillion United States Treasury bill market, froze. This was the canary in the coal mine. The temporary and unprecedented freezing of that market would spell financial apocalypse were it to continue. United States borrowing would be compromised and the consequences of this are almost unthinkable since the United States is completely dependent upon debt. But if this were to occur, the financial system as we know it would cease to exist and American power would disintegrate in a few weeks. For America is built on huge debt and this is what treasury bills are, government debt, with the promise to pay the lender who has bought the treasury bill. The Financial Times continues, To avert calamity, the Fed delivered an unprecedented series of measures, surpassing even its response to contain the crisis over a decade ago, 2008 crisis. Trading conditions soon began to stabilise. Volatility ebbed, and before long, the central bank had stoked a historic rebound in financial markets. Unquote. The fire had been stoked again. That is, vast new money creation. But when would the next outbreak occur? The next contagion? The next explosion? Or the next collapse? We move now to the second part of this podcast. In the last episode, I outlined some of the strengths of the capitalist system. I wish to explore now the really crucial point concerning the achievements of capitalism its capacity for sustained and unprecedented economic growth, and the raising of the average income levels of the majority of the population for the first time in history. Firstly, a quick look at ancient history, so we can get some idea of how exceptional is the recent growth of capitalism. The material for this is taken from two sources. Firstly, the standard of living in ancient societies, a comparison between the Han Empire, the Roman Empire and Babylonia by Lewin, Lee and Perngruber. And secondly, Economic Growth by Max Rosser, all of whom I thank for the freely available use of their material. Prior to the Industrial Revolution, only tiny elites of the tribal leaders, pharaohs, kings and religious leaders were truly rich. Economic inequality in pre-modern societies was very high and the average person lived in extreme poverty. Human societies in pre-modern times achieved no sustained economic growth to change this. Incomes remained almost unchanged over many centuries, when compared to the increase in the last few. Shelter, food, clothing, energy supply, the light source changed very little over time. Almost all that ordinary people used and consumed in the 17th century would have been very familiar to people living a thousand years earlier. The mass of people survived around subsistence level and often below. Technological innovation that increases productivity is the key to increased prosperity. There were technological breakthroughs before the 17th century, for example windmills, irrigation technology and also non-technical novelties such as new crops from the Americas. 
But these raised living standards temporarily, but then raised the size of the population to eradicate these gains. In the pre-industrial world, sporadic technological advance produced people, not wealth. Technological improvements led to larger but not richer populations. Larger populations pushed against the limits of available food supplies, as Malthus had clearly argued. Using the welfare ratio, which calculates the share of a subsistence basket of goods that a single wage of a male unskilled labourer can buy, there was only a small difference in the relative position of the unskilled labourer in the Roman Empire and the Han Dynasty, China, which was roughly at the same period, that is, around the time of Christ, for a couple of centuries. In both cases, unskilled workers plus slaves made up 80% of the population at least, who lived at or below the subsistence level necessary to maintain a family. Population growth was impeded by famine, poverty, malnutrition, very high infant mortality rates, war, violence, epidemics and so on. The same would have applied to ancient Babylonia and Roman Egypt, except that their agricultural regions had even lower welfare ratios. In China, with at least 80% of the population also at and many below subsistence level, little changed in the standard of living of the masses over thousands of years. Adam Smith noted in 1776 that the situation in his time was about equal to that in the period of Marco Polo, when he reached China in the late 1200s, concluding that the poverty of the lower ranks of people in China far surpasses that of the most beggarly nations in Europe. Unquote. Smith observed that agriculture and fisheries, as well as artisan work, hardly brought in more than enough food for bare survival. The position for the vast mass of people in China in Marco Polo's day would have been the same as in the time of the Han Dynasty, around the time of Christ. There had been thousands of years, therefore, with income stagnating for the vast majority around or below subsistence level. The welfare ratio in England, around 1300 AD, was actually around the level of the 6th century BC Babylonia, also the Han Dynasty in China in 100 AD, and it was not much above the Roman Empire, around 300 AD. This gives weight to Yuval Harari's hypothesis in his book Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, that pre-civilizational hunter-gatherer groups were better off nutritionally than the later populations in towns, agricultural units and small cities. Why didn't these later groups return to the hunter-gatherer lifestyle? Because they were trapped with larger populations who en masse couldn't go back. The crucial turning point in England was the era of the Black Death around 1347-1351 which afflicted the whole of Europe. The welfare ratio, that is the standard of living of the average labourer, rose in England after the Black Death and continued to rise thereafter, probably triggered by rising wages, scarcity of labour, and increased productivity, probably caused by the extra land now available. A rapid change took place the following centuries. In England, in 1688, the proportion of the population living at or below the subsistence level was no longer at 80%, but had decreased to 45 after which it declined even further to 40 in 1759. As the welfare ratio of the common labourer increased, the percentage of people at that level fell. 
This period of change in the long-term economic growth situation is called the Great Divergence. This miracle, at first in Northwest Europe, was the socio-economic shift which overcame pre-modern growth constraints, transforming the continent in the 19th century into the most powerful and wealthy world civilization, eclipsing all previous ones. Throughout history, there have been several episodes in which certain economies achieved economic growth. But in contrast to this sustained growth since the Industrial Revolution, these episodes in ancient times were all short-lived. What is new about modern times is that the growth of incomes lasted for a very long time until today, and that this growth did not only increase the incomes in one economy, but instead spread to other economies as well. The historic destitution, therefore, of common people only changed with the recent onset of economic growth. In England, some small steady growth after the Black Death in the 1300s, and then far more powerful economic growth, which began only a few hundred years ago in a few select countries, and then spread. Indeed, most of this growth was achieved in the last 100 to 150 years. In England, from the mid-1600s to the 21st century, Average incomes increased 30 times due to steady growth in output over centuries. Similarly, the United States' average GDP per capita in 1776, the eve of independence, was, in present-day terms, $1,883. By 2016, 240 years later, GDP per capita had increased 28 times. GDP per person from 1870 to 2016 in the United States, grew steadily at an average of 1.83% per year, with only very short deviations. Moreover, with respect to emerging nations in the 20th century, catch-up growth can be much faster, since advanced technologies can, in some countries, be imported and used very quickly. The average income in Taiwan in 1950 was US$1,400 United States dollars per year. In present day terms. By 2016, GDP per capita in Taiwan had increased to 42,300. The Taiwanese are now among the richest people in the world, 30 times more than they were in 1950. It's hard to imagine what this meant for living conditions in the country. To take just one example, every sixth child born in Taiwan in 1950 died before it was five years old. Today, child mortality rate has declined to half a percent, that is one in 200 children. China, the most famous example of all, and with a population now of 1.4 billion to contend with, has raised average GDP measured in purchasing parity terms, and with data from the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, raised average GDP from $313 per annum in 1980 to $17,000 by 2017 a rise of 54 times in one generation, of almost one-fifth of the human race. One of the most astounding events in economic history. With industrialisation and rising productivity, the share of people living in extreme poverty has decreased continuously over the course of the last two centuries. This is surely one of the most remarkable achievements of humankind. Together with economic growth and rising income levels have come countless other gains, some of which are not on the happiness index, because the beneficiaries have no idea 
of the misery and agony they have been spared. Take one example out of thousands. Smallpox is estimated to have killed up to 300 million people in the 20th century alone, and it was eradicated in the 1970s. And around 500 million people were killed by it in the last 100 years of its existence. Yes, half a billion. In the early 1950s, an estimated 50 million cases of smallpox occurred in the world each year. And as recently as 1967, 15 million cases occurred a year. The World Health Organization in 1980 declared solemnly that the world and its peoples have won freedom from smallpox, which was a most devastating disease, sweeping in epidemic form through many countries since earliest times, leaving death, blindness and disfigurement in its wake, and which only a decade ago was rampant in Africa, Asia and South America. Finally, and by way of contrast, I wish to continue with one of the last poems of the Sower and the Seed. While the search for economic growth is central to understanding history, the search for spiritual illumination is essential for realising human nature. You may wonder why in the same podcast episode I juxtapose economic financial theory, policy and practice on the one hand, and spiritual matters on the other. The answer is that it is only in theory and specialisms that such things are separated. In practice, the human psyche consists of many parts, but it is a fundamental drive within us to unify them, to make ourselves whole instead of being conflicting parts. At first glance, the economic and monetary policy, along with poetry and mysticism, seem strange bedfellows. But I'm suggesting more than this, that the evolving emergencies have at least ten dimensions, and undoubtedly many more. I'm suggesting a multidimensional crisis. Never with more urgency do we need a spiritual vision of the planet, which unites economics, politics, climate, our treatment of all life. On a purely practical note, we need to put spirit and ethical values into the economy and our political system, and our relationship to nature. Our philosophies, theories, specialisms and knowledge systems have been tremendously creative, but unless there is a radical paradigm shift, our species will be profoundly self-traumatised and possibly extinguished. Since we bear responsibility for all life on Earth, and now we realise for the planet itself, this is our moment of truth. The quest is the last section of the book, The Sower and the Seed. The story so far is of the pilgrim who has left his home, lost the captain of the ship, and is therefore separated from the world he knows and the ego ideals that have guided him. He seeks for that which can't be bought, the treasure within. He faces his despair, the negredo of the alchemical metaphor, the dark night of the soul, in the Christian tradition, and ascends the mountain and receives his vision. After the creation story is given to him, he wishes to know the nature of the soul. The poem begins by presenting a traditional vision, certainly one consistent with the Christian interpretation of what happens at the point of death. 
also actually consistent with the Egyptian beliefs as revealed in their Book of the Dead. That is, a judgment scenario followed by heaven or hell. But then the poem changes. There is a whisper in the pilgrim's ear that this is not the ending. There follows another narrative consistent with Hindu and Tibetan Buddhist belief in which there is a stripping away of the ego and the personality and an encounter with the light, after which a probable rebirth takes place. Images such as those of wheat, grain, husk, seed, winnowing, fields, replanting, occupy the poem and reflect the title of the book, The Sower and the Seed. Here is the poem, The Soul's Vision. The next day in the mountain, where light is sharped by snow, a spirit strong and wrapped his mind, more he wished to know. The wind, it quickened in the dawn, the prophet in him stirred. What is the nature of the soul? These are the words he heard. At end of life, you might expect to go before your maker. That husk is sifted from the seed, like wheat in fields full acre. Winnowing wind the chaff may lift, the essence is retained. There's nothing left then to pretend, the soul alone remains. The seed that is your essence, of heart and spirit made, this is what you really are. A mix of light and shade. This is what you have become throughout the course of life, including joy and sorrow, all your love and strife. The heart has all the love you need, how much you have to give, so easily is it damaged. To grow it must forgive, unless it frees itself from hurt. It's trapped within its history. Release the heart from painful wounds. Unlock the healing mystery. The spirit is your higher self. Within the brow it lies. Illumination of your path. It shines as from the skies. It lies above your petty fate. Transcendence is the goal. The vehicle of becoming the guide that is your soul. Death is construed in many faiths to be a final judgment. The soul to either heaven goes or hell to suffer torment. Depending on the balance, your final fate is pending. But in your ear a whisper comes, this is not the ending. Destruction and creation are the forces of existence. The soul is milled as through a vice. In death, there's no resistance. It then ascends towards the light. The essence is revealed. Some say the seed replanted is to grow in other fields. For death, the cruel destroyer is. It reaps the harvest yield. From out of death, new life will come. The seed is now revealed. From out of death new life will come as day does follow night. Transformation grips the soul. 
it reaches for the light. Now strip the husk, the chaff is gone, the grain is left behind. Seek for rebirth in this life, the soul you need to find. <laughs>